there, Shopamaniacs. You are listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show podcast, all about websites and web design. I'm Dave Rubin. With me is Chris Coyer. Hey, Chris. That's me. Lovely day for a Shop Talk Show, I'd say. We have a very special guest. I believe the guest who's been on a Shop Talk Show more than anybody else, so probably needs no introduction, but I'll introduce her anyway. It is the wonderful Jen Simmons. Hi, Jen. How are you doing? Hello. Hey. And, uh, you know, last time you were on the show probably was pre-Apple, and now there's, um, as you said, kind of <laughs> been a whole pandemic and there's some big personal and professional changes, one of which is that you are now at Apple. Yeah, I'm a web technology evangelist on the WebKit team along with the Safari team, um, which has been pretty fantastic, actually. I really, I'm really having a great time there. Yeah. I feel that coming off you, your energy. And, and, Perhaps not so coincidentally, after you being there, the it feels like a different Safari, a different WebKit, because of, um, in a sense, the velocity of shipping new stuff, which is lines up pretty nicely with the velocity by which web standards, front-end web browser stuff is evolving. There's just a lot happening, and Safari's like <laughs> keeping up and leading it in some cases, and that's like pretty sweet to see for us web developers. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that, because we've been working really hard. There have been several been releases since Safari 15.0 came out um, and that's what we want everybody like that's that's the effect we want to be having is that there's just a lot of new stuff coming out it's coming out in Safari as well as other browsers um, yeah decoupled releases is that fair to say that you can you can pluck open you, you know Safari releases kind of roll out independently of the OS which I'm not sure how new that is but it feels significant well we what well, the change is that we change the way that releases are being numbered so uh, you'll see this like second, the first digit after the decimal point is now changing each time Safari comes out. So it's Safari uh, 15.1, 0.2, 0.3, 0.4, yeah. all the way up to 15.6 this year. And then 16.0 is coming out this fall. So that's the biggest change, which really makes it much more possible for everyone to have a lot more visibility into what's going into each one of those releases of Safari. And so, for instance, you can go to caniuse.com and the data there is more accurate. And, uh, you know, there's blog posts and release notes coming out every time there's a new version of Safari, this sort of tenth of a decimal place version numbering. Yeah, it makes, certainly makes it easier to talk about, doesn't it? Like, ooh, what's in what's in 15.3? Right. Or like, oh, look, 15.5 and 15.6. There were some cool things that shipped. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I mean, even for podcast, it's nice. So thanks. Uh, <laughs> we have a whole <laughs> table of contents here that I'm not going to share with you up front because there's a lot to get through. That's the point, though, of this show is we're going to roll through some of the stuff that you may or may not know about what's landed and coming in Safari. And there's a lot of it. So we're going to roll with the kind of breadth over depth on this stuff so that you, on kind of on purpose for the show as we planned, to just show you, oh my God, all that is in Safari now? That's great. There's the bulk of it is in CSS land near and dear to our hearts and listeners of the show, I'm sure. So we're going to start in CSS land a bit. Uh, uh, why don't we start with just a massive one? And that's that Safari Safari is shipping container queries. Yeah, container queries, what, number one most requested thing in CSS for the last several Ever. years? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, it's right now in Safari 
16 beta. You can try it out. Uh, grab yourself a copy of the beta software um, or download Safari 16 beta itself alone um, and try out container queries. Uh, and it's coming. Um, I know it's also been implemented in Chrome behind. I think it's still behind an experimental flag. Um, so you can try it out there. So and container queries, you know, the, the thing for anyone who, I don't know, doesn't know what's been requested for so long is that you can... You know, media queries give you the ability to write conditional CSS that happens or doesn't happen based on the width or height or whatever, but mostly the yeah. width of the viewport, like the window. But container queries gives you the chance to query a container instead of the whole entire viewport. So you can write a single component and put it in many different places, and just that layout code for that component can sort of morph around or, you know, typography or whatever, color even um, can change based on the size of the container that something is inside of. Which is huge, right? Because there's always been that disconnect between like, yeah, but this little component, the styling decisions I want to make aren't necessarily attached to how wide or whatever else the browser window is. Right. Like it could be in a really narrow column, even though the screen is super wide. And that's been so annoying for so long that it's like, heck yeah, we can finally do this. So cool to see that that ship. Just, just, just outstanding. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that maybe folks aren't expecting is that you actually, you have to point to the container. So it's the, the browser, none of the browsers are going to magically know that this particular element is the widget or the component, you know, the edge of the component, and that this particular element or div or a side or whatever is the sidebar by which you want it to measure from. So you have to, you have to be specific about that. So you have to say, okay, well, the container that I want it to measure, I'm going to put a mm -hmm. container class on it. So dot container. And then on the dot container, you'll say something like container type inline size, which is kind of like the width uh, in most writing modes. Uh, can, and you can kinda name like it. a prerequisite to make it work, right? Yeah. So you have to point at the container by telling it what kind of container you want. And also by, if you'd like to give it a name, you can give it a name, which is, can be really handy. And then you use the at container rule and you can write some conditional code a lot like before. If you want to use the name, you can put it there and be like at container foobar with a yeah. greater than 450 pixels and then you can write your code for your component and such underneath that so it's a little bit different than all the proposals that have been floated around for years is that you do have to actually point at a container but um, it's going to be super powerful and really helpful and mostly you know folks have asked me like well what kind of difference does this make to everyday people who use the web it's like mm, uh uh, nothing. I don't know. Really, it's a developer convenience. It means you get to write much more compact and efficient code and reuse that code in many, many, many more places, which means you'll free up some development time to go work on something else or to be more consistent in your code or, you know, the site will probably be better for it. But really, the 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 heart of why it's exciting is because it makes it easier for front-end developers to write their CSS. That's a good point. It's a developer-facing thing, right? Well, I, I just feel like people don't understand. It's like the Thanos snap for every front-end bug <laughs> like, <laughs> ever. Because it's just so many problems come from like, okay, but when I'm here and then, oh, wait, this page has like a sidebar. Okay, now it's different. Like uh, yeah. this fixes so much. Uh, I'm thanks for all the work. I mean, I know like, you know, hundreds of people have been involved, but just like the the work on this has been amazing to see. And uh, so I'm very happy. This is like long wanted feature. 
Yeah, and I, my hope is always, hey, if you do get some, you, if you have fewer bugs, especially layout bugs, and you have some time freed up, you could be more creative. You could do something different. You don't have to do the same layout that everybody else has been doing for the last 10 years. Like, you could do something really amazing now that something amazing isn't hair pulling out hard to do. It's like, oh, it's actually not that hard to do. So, Well, and we always, we always had the viewport, right? Like, at media and querying the viewport, but that was always kind of a dumb proxy for what you mm. actually meant. And and now we can kind of, I don't know, expressive. We can say what we mean when the container, when the parent of this thing is this big, do this thing. And and that's... And you'll actually do it. I think that's what's interesting is that you sure, like there was interesting JavaScript e-ways to get that done. And everybody's like, yeah, that would work in JavaScript. And nobody did it. Because well, because uh, JavaScript for layout is always slow. Yeah, it's not ideal. You know, I, I'm sure there's interesting ways you could do it. Besides, if you had, you know, because of how popular JavaScript frameworks are, that was mitigated in some way because, it, you know, layout didn't happen until the JavaScript executed anyway. So, like, it, you could avoid some jankiness. And still nobody did it. Well, it's, it's like, I'm going to solve my UI bug by introducing 10,000 JavaScript bugs. No, thanks. Right. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> right. Well, so and what's Exciting. I mean, I think what's really exciting is that right now we're getting some very mature tools or, or like I should say some very powerful tools to make CSS more mature to sort of up the ante on how powerful of a programming language it is so that you can use CSS for things where CSS is the appropriate tool and you don't have to go and use JavaScript in order to get the kind of power that you need. Um, and in fact, several of the things that we have on this list that we that you were referring to, Chris, like the first set, I feel like this year is really a year where there's a group of things that once we finally wrap our heads around them and use them constantly, and we kind of look back, whatever, eight years from now on the, on the code that we used to write, um, are a radical departure into how you architect your CSS code. So container queries is part of it. And then cascade layers and has, which we can talk about next, are part of it. And then in the future, we may be getting scoping and nesting. And I feel like when you put all of those things together, it's like, oh, we're going to, yeah, we're going to totally change the way that we structure our code and the way that we... Yeah, well, it's going to look a lot different, but don't you think it'll be more understandable? It won't. It's like power. It's it's a kind of power that ends up making things simpler and more understandable. It's not power that at the cost of it also being more complicated. Right. It doesn't make it more complicated, but it does make, it does make it different. But I think the mental model that you can express in your code is a more... A advanced mental model, which will make it easier than the alternative, which is using a more basic mental model expressed in the code, but needing to do something advanced. So then it starts to get kind of a little bit spaghettios, like you don't know what's going on inside your code. <laughs> it's hard to read. Um, so yeah, you can make much more readable and, and, and code that actually makes sense. But in order to get there, we have to learn these new concepts and people are going to have to invest some time and and sort of rethinking like, oh yeah, you know, I used to always think about it in that other way, but now this new way, yeah, yeah, I'm going to start, I'm going to start using the new way because it's clearly maps more closely to what we need and it's clearly better um, but yeah, it's it's a you know it's a change like yeah you know, like responsive web design was in the first place right so where responsive web design came along to replace fixed width design that was a big change I feel like now there's another big change again doesn't really have necessarily a lot of impact on users but it does totally impact architecture and 
developers of CSS. Yeah, yeah. And those things are related. I don't, you know, I mean, in my opinion anyway, I know people, uh, you know, th- yeah. ultimately what users experience is what we're trying to build for. But uh, yeah, DX matters personally. I, I would say, yeah, go ahead, Dave. I, you know, I think it's hard to say like what it's going to do for users, but, you know, I think we can already kind of predict. I mean, if it's easier to express more different layouts and creative coding than like that should happen. I mean, you know, I think about like writing grids, you know, it was kind of hard to write a responsive grid. So you got four columns. Sorry, that's all I can do. Uh, I'm doing four columns and they break to one at 800 pixels. Now we have CSS grid and like columns are effortless, right? And so uh, now we can Mm. just you know, that's another thing Jen did, but rather <laughs> handed. Uh, but like, you know, doing like grid is, is like massively efficient and I can just sprinkle them wherever I want. And it's yeah. amazing. And so I feel like now, like we've solved a big piece with layout and now we're solving kind of even now the micro pieces can, I don't know, be better inside the layout they're in, you know? So I, I think yeah. it's going to be cool. So yeah. Faster and fewer bugs is always amazing for users. So I don't, I don't, sorry. I don't mean to like to deny that. Isn't, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I, I was looking at like a grid system I'd made, you know, we used to ship, you know, 20 K of CSS just for a grid, you know, just for like oh, a yeah. 12 column right. or eight column, three column grid. And now None, zero. Like I mean, one line, like mm. eight kilobytes. <laughs> so for a grid, it's just I don't know, or not even kilobytes, eight bytes. You know. So, so let's talk about cascade layers. Um, yes, let's go because I don't understand. Can I do this. one thing real quick? I want to make sure when people are listening to this, I want. There's always that risk that people are like, "Ugh, it's a podcast," so they're talking about these future things that I'll never be able to use. That really oh, no. hangs on for a while. I will say that. Safari 16, you, you said fall. I mean, I know you can't be quoted on the time or whatever. That, that's fine. But we're getting it, and it's coming in 16. And you can already play with it and shipping Safari now, so it's not a pipe dream. Chrome is a similar story. It's going to drop sometime in August, I think, this theoretically when their version of it drops. And, but, yeah, we don't hear anything from Firefox, so you'll have to decide you know, how important that is to you. But I will say Container Query specifically is polyfillable. At least most of it is. I have a little side project that's using it now. And it works fine. It's a really decent little polyfill. So it is one of those features that it's like you you can put this in your tool belt. Like it's and real, progressively enhanceable. Like they get the mobile layout if they don't. You know, it's you can do that too. It's good to hear that the polyfill works and is fast enough and all that stuff. Yeah, it does. It's- yeah, it's fine. I mean, there's a, yeah, I mean, uh, let's not <laughs> dwell on too many details there. I'd rather have people know that th- thing, things are possible now and have, being in the two biggest browsers is is a big deal. Um, let, you wanted to drag us towards Cascade Layers, which is absolutely fascinating. Part of this backstory that I'd love to lay, to hear more from you about is that part of it came from a response to CSS and JS, this whole like phenomenon that happened of people wanting to bring their styling into JavaScript, which is, of course, there's lots to say about. I did not realize that its origin came from that conversations around that. Yeah, I mean, I remember it feels like a long time ago now, but it really was just a few years um, before the pandemic. I remember going to a lot of conferences and, and this idea of kind of, oh, CSS is so terrible and I hate it and let's just put everything in JavaScript. Let's try to get rid of, it just felt like people were trying to destroy CSS by using JavaScript instead. That's probably not accurate, but but I remember 
I personally, personally, I was just a little bit worried about, and and then I and then I realized, well, there must be a good reason that folks are so grumpy and so frustrated, and there must be a good reason that they're bringing out big hammers to try to do something. Um, and I wondered how much it was because folks were struggling with the cascade. Mm. Um, and I was, you know, I was talking to Miriam Suzanne about this pretty in depth um, now, maybe three or four years ago, and and she had some really good insights about. Like, well, if you if you are using a JavaScript framework to create all these components and the components are all loading in random order, like no wonder you're frustrated with the CSS cascade because the cascade's completely dependent on the order of the styles in order to have the effect that you want to have. Um, so we were talking, 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 and she had this insight into, well, there's this thing in CSS from the very, very beginning called origins where the user agent styles are in one origin, like the default styling that any browser has. The user styles, which we kind of don't think about it or talk about it all today, but there used to be, back in the day, browsers had a way where the user could write their own styles and stick them in the browser, and the browser would use that styling to override the UA styles. And then author styles, author being the W3C's word for people who write the code for websites, front-end developers, webmasters, web developers, whatever we've called ourselves. And that the author styles would always override the user styles and the user styles always override the user agent styles. And it doesn't matter like how specific or not specific any of that code is, that someone who's writing the browser style sheet could, I mean, nobody has, but they could use an incredibly high, like, very specific, powerful selector with like, you know, multiple IDs and a whole bunch of classes or whatever. And that doesn't matter because even the weakest author style is always going to beat the most powerful user style. This is the fascinating moment to me is that this has always been true. We just never really thought about it in this way. Because in my mind, I was always like, yeah, there's there's user agent styles, but they're really weak. But they're only really weak for two reasons. One, they get loaded first. And two, even if you peek in there, the selectors that people used are super, super light. Right. But that it's actually not, that's not why they're weak. They're right. weak because they're on this like secretly weak layer. Right. I didn't know this either. And so then important, because we all sort of knew that as front-end developers, like, okay, if you have a, you're trying to write some CSS and it's not applying and you aren't quite sure why, and then you realize it's because the selector that you're writing is weaker than some other selector and you need to override that other selector. But either you don't have the ability or you don't have time or you just don't feel like sort of detangling all your code, you just throw important at it because then it's just going to beat the other one. Um, I just thought, well, important beats, like I had a very basic understanding of how this works. But the truth is, it's that important styles are in a a series of layers that are in the opposite, that happen in the opposite order of the non-important styles. So important author styles beat important, that regular author styles, but important user styles beat all the author styles, important and not important. And important UA styles, so if somebody writes an important UA style selector, which I don't know if anybody ever has, but if you open up a UA style sheet, if there was an important selector in there, it would beat everything else completely. Um, and so that idea that sort of, Miriam and I were talking one day and it was like, well, she, she was like, we could, we could make, we could give the ability to authors to create their own layers or, you know, their own origins using the, the older terminology. Mm-hmm. And it was like, 
Yes, that would be fantastic. So um, we talked about it. I presented it at the CSS Working Group. Um, she joined the CSS Working Group, and two years later, it shipped in all the browsers. Wow, that's nuts. Uh, man, there's a lot to, to unpack there. Well, I'm curious, though, what the, like, I don't know, here's a simple story, <clears throat> is that you, when you're writing, you're you're tasked to make some changes to a website, like you're applying a theme to it or something, one approach to it, assuming that this is, you're just, you can just use this new technology is that you put your, you put your new stuff in some highest possible level layer. And then the CSS that you write in there, you get to totally like wipe away the idea of specificity in your mind, because whatever selector you use to grab onto something, it just automatically wins because it's the highest layer. I, I don't know if that's the story you want to tell here, but that is a no. To me a little bit. That's one yeah. of the use cases that we pitched to the CSS working group was like, you know what could a team could use this for is to sweep all the older stuff into a junk drawer and then override <laughs> it with their new beautiful design system or organized CSS or their new rules or like whatever it is that they like their new mm -hmm. organization. So because, you know, you want to get rid of the old technical debt, but do you really have a big enough team and the time to just refactor everything like that doesn't come along very often. So it's like, well, you could just sweep all that stuff, the, the, no matter what the specificity is, into its own layer and make it, yeah, a weaker layer and then start clean with a better, better architected set of styles. Wow, nice. I'm, I'm glad. That's cool. Another use case would be, say, you're using a CSS framework. Like, you know, there's a bunch of popular ones. You know, Bootstrap, of course, is one of them. There's many. Um, and uh, often, or, you know, over the last decade or whatever, Frameworks like that have worked hard to use very weak, specified CSS. And then, you know, you your custom styles for your website have to be stronger. Or, but in this kind of world with cascade layers, it's like, well, the folks who created that framework could use whatever kind of selectors they want to. Um, and then you, your team building a website could put that framework into a layer and make that layer kind of weak. And then you could write all kinds of uh, overrides and put them into an, a, a layer that's stronger. And you wouldn't have to worry about the specificity of those two things because you know which styles. It's so fascinating. So these, it changes quote unquote best practices in some way. Like if yeah. you were writing a CSS framework today, you wouldn't go too heavy with the selectors knowing that there's a decent chance that somebody has to match or beat your selectors. So you're just being nice. You don't have to be nice anymore, theoretically, if, if, yeah. the, if the world grasps onto this uh, in the way they could. And you can nest layers inside of layers. So if somebody is building a third-party framework or tool or library or whatever, and they want to use layers while they're making that framework, they can. And then mm. a website can have layers and it can pull the entire framework into its into a single layer, but inside of that framework wow. is a whole bunch of layers, right? So you can, however you want, you don't have to worry about, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, it's really powerful. Can we paint one more picture? The one of, like, let's say this takes hold, you know, because you know, it remains to be seen. It's like, it's going to ship, but, you know, wh wh how will it change how people really write code remains to be seen. Do you have a picture in your mind, a, a little bit of like, what a greenfield project embracing layers to their, you know, most beneficial sense might be like? Like, how would you set up a group of layers you, that you think is pretty smart? The quick examples I've made... Um 
in talking about this have been things like, well, you might have some kind of a reset layer where you've got kind of, you know, we used to always, folks used to always use a reset style sheet, but maybe it's not really about having Mm-hmm. simple styles, but maybe it's some sort of a base, base, you know, when I used to build a lot of uh, websites on this one particular content management system, base styles was sort of a concept that was used often. So it was like, you know, your basic headline styling, paragraph styling, that kind of stuff um, into some kind of a reset or base layer. And then you could have a design system that goes into, you know, that, that maybe has a lot of coverage, but not a hundred percent coverage. And then you could have a layer for, I don't know, maybe you've got a lot of media elements or a lot of specific certain kind of content. And so you want to write styles for that bucket of content, but you don't really want to worry about, you know, maybe, maybe that's being handled by a different team so they could put their stuff in a certain layer. Um, maybe if you've got, um, yeah, and then maybe you've got like a whole bunch of overrides and a whole bunch of one-offs, a bunch of like, sorry, but got to do this. Like you could stick that into a layer. Um, yeah. And then I should say that unlayered styles. So what happens to the styles that you don't put into a layer? They are the most powerful. Um, so that right. will affect perhaps what you do because anything that's sort of outside of a layer is going to be most powerful, except unless you put important on things. Because again, important will flip the order of the layers. So important in your base layer is going to be more powerful than anything else. Important, well, except for the and now I'm confusing myself, but like if you had layer A, B, and C, and then you put important all, on all of them, they would, they would, the importance, like the specificity uh, would be C, B, and A, right? And okay. right. Wow. unlayered is like sandwiched in the middle. So yeah, you're important. All your important layers are more powerful than your important unlayered styles. Yes. <laughs> I almost think it makes more of a case of not using important because the mental model is actually worse now. I think everything else is better, but I hate important. Also, it's you could almost think of it as like, you know, all the times you've had to use important. Well, instead of using important, you could just take use those styles layer. and put yeah. them into another layer. A layer called important. although i wonder if that word is excluded from being an official name i don't maybe not i can't remember because that Mm, makes it it double more powerful uh it (laughs) maybe it's not i have to i don't know it could because i always this always blew my mind is that it's not bang important like the bang matters but it doesn't matter how many spaces are between the bang and the word important i always thought they had to be next to each other but they do not Um, okay. Well, that's amazing. I do really like that. The kind of, uh, I'm hoping that the best practice, I shouldn't say hoping because I just could be wrong, but it seems like if you're going to use layers, you should layer everything. The like leaving, leaving stuff outside of a layer to just be super strong feels like you've made a powerful layer, but I feel like that's asking for trouble. I think you should layer everything. What what happens if I create a layer like called like about page or something. And I never specify where that shows up. What, what happens to those styles? Do they just never show up or. Um, well, the order, no, the order in which the layers are defined is the order in which they are like, what's more powerful or less powerful. So you can use this single line to kind of quote unquote, initialize the layers, but that's probably, that's not even the right word. But like, if you just say, you know, I want uh, at layer base, design system, Dave's stuff, uh, overrides where we apologize for it, right? Like, then that's the order. But you don't have to do that. You could instead just open, say, at layer, base, open bracket, and then you just write some code, and then you write some more code, and then you write some more code. So 
just like everything else in the style sheet, I always kind of, for, you know, it, it, at first I was forgetting, like, wait, is the first one listed most important or the last one listed most important? It's like, no, no, no. It's the same as, as any other styles. Like if I write, you know, stuff at the top of my style sheet and then I write stuff at the bottom of my style sheet, the stuff at the, the bottom, bottom is going to override the stuff at the yeah. top. So it's, it's the okay, same. So source order still is the same unless I go through and I say, no, actually make my layers go this order. And then any unlayered styles are at the top, or, or like basically yeah, the most win. important. They win. That's so it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's a good rule set. I can wrap my head around. I've been like struggling to like, how can I use this? Or like, I would you try know. to lint. I would be specific about it. not that not that I get to be the champion of best practices, but I would use the 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 one liner where you say which is which. That like feels way yeah. better to me. It, it, I think it's a little easier to keep track of as a human being. I, I do think, I mean, so best practices, like I hope people maybe write three, four, six layers for a project and not 100, 200, 700 mm -hmm. layers for a right? Mm -hmm. We did have a little conversation about like, are people going to try to make a separate layer for every component? Like, is that going to be a thing? Is that going to... Yeah, like, yeah that, don't do that. Oh, please. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. that, but also I think it's another example of what's the best practice. I don't know. Let's get a time machine out and ask ourselves three years from now, because I think, you know, there's a way in which maybe like start using it on some projects and see, but realize that we're going to learn along the way. And hopefully some folks will write some really great articles and some blog posts about it and say, you know what, I tried this, but I ran into these problems and I did it this way. And it seemed to work much better for my team because it really is about organizing the human beings. It's just another new tool for just like a design system is not really about the code. It's more about helping the humans stay organized when a whole bunch of different people are mm -hmm. working on the code, I think this is similar. So it's really a, a, a tool for your team and team communication and team organization. Um, and so I think we need some some case studies and some real world stories about what worked or didn't work for a particular team. We've got a bunch of stuff to get through, so maybe we can increase the pace a little bit. But 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 this next one is so juicy. Is the has selector unbelievable? We talked about it with with Eric and Jeffrey a little bit, so we've already kind of recently talked about this one. But talk about a, a powerful new feature already shipping. Safari, uh, wonderful. And, it, you know, it's thought of as the parent selector, although there's plenty of people being like, don't call it a parent selector, only because you can... So you're, you are selecting the parent when conditionally it has some other thing going on anywhere in the DOM below it. But then once you have the parent, you can drill back down into the DOM, which is mind blowing. <laughs> so, yeah, has is, is, is great. I've been making some demos lately for it um, as, I, as I'm writing an article. It's not out yet. So um, check it out, webkit.org. At some point, I'll be publishing this article. Then I've got like five or six different demos in it. But um, there's, I just, you know, it's kind of mind blowing, especially when you start using it with pseudo classes on forms. So there's just so many use cases where in the past, maybe you'd reach for JavaScript. Like, oh my uh, God, like form has error or invalid or something? Yes, form oh has my invalid. Gosh. <laughs> Like Form show has, the P tag next to it. Oh my god! Yes, to like change change the color of the layer, the label. You can change the color of the label. Um, oh and, wow! And even add a before oh, or after label. with an X or a check mark, nice. right? Nice. Because 
without has, you can change the color of the border on the element, the actual input, but you can't do anything else. Well, this, yeah, you, you can change go the backwards in the DOM to get the label, right. assuming now that's where can. the label it has, is. You totally can. Right. You can, you can do things like put a toggle on your website for dark mode and the toggle doesn't have to be on the, t the root of the DOM tree. It can be anywhere in the DOM tree and you can just use has to like climb up the DOM tree and, and create a dark, dark mode styling that then goes back all the way down the DOM tree, any, any place in the whole tree. Um, you can use, you know, like um, Jeremy Keith, for instance, had for for years has had a theme picker on his website. It's like a select menu where you can drop down and choose and switch to a different, totally different layout. Um, and instead of using JavaScript for that, you can use has for that. Use a select menu. Just you don't even need to hook it up to any kind of backend. You just have a select menu and you use has to capture which state that menu is in and then completely apply different styles based on the the state of that um, yeah that's just just amazing it's, there, it's it went so far as our discord andrew in the discord was was speculating that has could be picked up by even a javascript framework that manages state and state could be expressed almost any kind of state could be expressed across the entire dom using has uh, which is, I know, a little, I don't know, mind twisty or something. But, you know, it's nice when when technology that offers state management can, like, use something browser native to express it. And I wouldn't doubt that we see that. That's Yeah, so I encourage people, what, it's episode 520, Shop Talk Show, listen to Eric and Jeffrey talk to the two of you about has. Um, and also there's some, there's starting to be some really great articles and demos out there. Um, and it's a good example. So, like, I was writing these form elements demos with a whole bunch of different hazes and by the time you get like form has something that's uh, focused uh, focus visible and uh, space so that it's sort of an and uh input not has like it started to be a very powerful selector and i started to run into problems with being able to override which thing I wanted to override. So mm. I was like, oh, no, am I going to have to reach for layers? I don't need important. So I, even though it's a fairly simple demo, I put all my code in four layers because I needed to sort out what override like what would override what oh, without wow. worrying about this massive specificity that was getting created by these, like using multiple student right. classes with has. And then and if we had nesting too, which, you know, may or may not ship in the next year or something, but it looks like it's got some movement that will unlock some organizational concepts. And yeah. So the, the two other organizational things like, so nesting, if anybody has used SAS, I think that's one of the main remaining use cases that people still really like SAS for is because you can kind of nest your selectors and you, you know you nest a whole bunch of code inside of each other it's very clear that it'd be great for that to become to css there is a discussion right now about whether or not it's um like what the syntax should be there's a bit of a hot debate about it um some mm. folks want to use a greater than sign some folks want to use an ampersand some folks want to use at nest repeatedly over and over through the whole, the whole thing and some people right. just want to use extra brackets right so there's actually an article over on a uh, developer.chrome.com i'll put the link in your show notes help pick a new syntax for css yeah, nesting fun. it's fun to think about because it's like we'll probably get one of them so you might as well have your say now yeah the, of course the the main response is like why can't it just be exactly like sass or less and there's reasons why it can't be so it's like yeah. wipe that from your mind it's got to be one of these so yeah 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 so um 
it's not going to ship in any browser until the working group figures out what the syntax should be, because, you know, we don't want to try to change the syntax after we've shipped it. We tried that with Flexbox and we learned the hard way that that's not a good idea. So no one can ship it until all the syntax gets figured out. So who knows how long that will take? Sometimes it goes quick and sometimes it takes years. So um, people chiming in can help make that go quicker. Um, and then, yeah, scoping. So scoping would be, you know, there's a lot of ideas about scoping that have been kicked around for years. That word means many different things to many different people. But the thing that's being discussed right now is for the cascade specification level six, where like cascade layers is in level five of the cascade spec. And oh, Jen, um, I think we're all familiar with the difference between uh, five and six. So I think. So it, it would basically give you a way to kind of create a donut in your selectors. So let's say you have a component and it's called Zebra. Uh, you, you got a Zebra class on it and you've got, you know, Zebra H2, you know, dot Zebra paragraph styles. And then you have like, it's inside of a bigger component and your bigger component is alligator. Your alligator, so you have a dot alligator H2 styles and alligator H paragraph styles. But the way it is right now that when you write the dot alligator um, H2 styles, it's going to actually also apply to any H2s that are inside the Zebra component. And if you want to override that, you can override it, but there's no way to like not apply the styles to the Zebra H2 because it's inside the DOM for the <sighs> alligator. This would give you a chance to be like, I'd like to go from dot alligator to dot zebra and, and then, then stop. Stop. Uh, Golly. Don't keep it. going I'm with not your sure cascading. If my brain can deal with that. I know. It's so weird. It's so but cool. I can get it for like the markdown component. Like, oh, there's a chunk of markdown in here. Don't let anything else mess with it. Like, donut out that little part because. It's going to, I don't know. Because it just it's, gives I another option. Because right now you yeah. can override, but you have to override. This would give you a way to define a component where it doesn't, where you can start the styles cascading through and then you can stop them at some place. You know, I think like when, when that talk of scoping came out, people were like, I already have scoping. I have BEM, you know? Um, and it's like, well, BEM, BEM can't do that right you know and so you can bem you can you can do dot z and dot a and use some kind of bem thing but you're still cascading through and this would give you yeah yeah it's totally different than whatever and also also a little bit back to that was a, a around um cascade layers i feel like it you know we've had this rule for like 15 years that you can only use classes don't ever use ids and you always have to use like a separate class for each little thing you want to do like oh this color has a class and then this font has a class and then this size has a class and so if you want to style that h2 you apply three separate classes one for color one for font family and one for size and that's how you must do it must do best practices always always it's like that's not that has nothing to do with css that has to do with dealing with humans and overriding and organizational desires that are very real, a la, you know, 2008. And now that we have these more powerful tools like cascade layers and perhaps in the future like scoping, um, you, I, I hope we reassess and reevaluate whether or not those ideas are really imp good ideas anymore, whether we need those ideas. Because you can manage... Th those ideas were trying, were attempting, were an attempt to manage something that needed to be managed, and now we have other ways to manage those same things. So maybe we want to let go of that whole like you must only use classes and a whole bunch of separate ones and stuff. Oh, I we'll bet see. we will. That feels like the biggest fundamental shift. I mean, because we're just kind of, it's kind of funny how like oh CSS is broken, oh it's a fail, you know, right? 
And for decades, <laughs> that's been the marketing. Uh, and and it's like, oh, well, if we just add these like few little bits of organization, it actually becomes super more powerful and just you don't even need all those little weird tricks we did, you know? Yeah, yeah. It just goes away. The problem just goes away. Yeah, it's so. like it's like floating everything and putting percent widths on everything. Like there was a good reason we did it, but let's not do it anymore because we have way better tools now. So we'll see. Speaking of, let's talk about subgrid. Let's do that. Let's get, let's definitely hit on these layout things because I think they're the most fun part of CSS before we can jump into some HTML and some other interesting Safari things. I see subgrids dropping in sixteen. We've talked about subgrid a, a, a lot of times. It's just incredibly welcome that that will be yeah. shipping in 16, it means that an element that's a part of a grid can inherit inherit the grid lines from the parent grid, which means that you can like line up stuff internally on a grid with the parent grid. And that just that just makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And it falls back really well. So like definitely start using grid and definitely start using subgrid. And even though it's not quite in every browser yet, it will be eventually. And in the meanwhile, it falls back beautifully. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Subgrid is great. It'll make a lot of lot of people happy, including me. I think it's the right, you know, it completes the power of grid in a way. Also, I didn't even really realize that you couldn't do this, but we'll be dropping in 16 Safari is uh, the animating the grid, which I guess we're not talking about like, oh, I can change the grid layout and the elements will fly to their new positions or anything like that. Right. We're talking about the fact that you can, like if you're setting up grid template columns and then you, uh, you want to change those, say in a container query, then that if they have a transition on them, they'll animate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't animate the items for reasons that are sad but true. Um, but you can animate the definition of grid template rows and grid template columns. Um, so you, I mean, so like uh, Michelle Barker made a good, um, a really cool demo that I was looking at recently where she used, uh, has, and grid animations nice. together so that right. when you hover over a particular like she had these four cards like four up two two by two grid and when you hovered over one of the items that item would would get would get bigger and the other three would get smaller and she accomplished that by making that first row you know made made the like made the row that you're hovering over and the column you're hovering over get bigger so that one item would get bigger and the other the other two would get right. smaller. And when you see that you're like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, obviously we need that. <laughs> For that, that kind of Yeah, it's a like it's like a way to animate the size of content um by animating the grid that they live inside of. Yeah. Um, so if you if you didn't know you couldn't do that before, well good, because now when you reach for it it'll it will work like you expect it to work because it's a number. It's like you better be able to animate a number. Yeah, what's related to yeah, it? Yeah, animate it from like one FR to two FR from, you know, 200 right, pixels exactly. to 400 pixels or whatever. Um, yeah, and then so another animation thing is the CSS offset path, which also is known by m the name of the spec, which is motion path, but the oh. properties are called offsets. I tend to call it offset path. So like you can define a path with offset path um, and then you can have that thing that's being animated so like i don't know a box or an arrow or something that gets animated move a, instead of going in a straight line which a is curve. what we've had up until now it can yeah it can go in a curve or it can go in some kind of whatever you a can define shape or whatever right yeah, yeah you can define the shape Ooh, i don't know how i feel about this non-rectangular uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> era of CSS. I don't know. I made a demo I still love with this. I'm putting in a recent talk where where a modal comes in, but rather than it just sliding in from the one of the edges or at a straight line or from above or whatever, it comes in on a bit of a chill... Curve. curve it just goes whoosh yeah. in and it's such a satisfying interesting thing and uh, i don't know I, I feel like that's going to be uh part of the yeah. surprise and delight toolkit for a minute once it's available everywhere yeah so it'll be in safari 16 and um it you know there's other parts of the motion there's other uh, offset path uh, or offset properties to like make it maybe your thing is an arrow and you want it to sort of turn it like rotate a bit in space as it's going down the line or you want it to go quickly at first and then slow down further along the line or like there's all sorts of details that you can finesse with that um yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, I think we'll, if I could move us along, as there's so many interesting things to talk about. I do want to mention color only specifically because I, I've heard some wonderful things from Jen about how the fact that Safari is now supporting P3 color and its wider color gamut has really like opened up to your, you know, I don't know, your design ability and thinking about color on the web because of how much many more colors you can you can support. It's nice to know that that's coming to Safari. In fact, maybe, maybe Safari was even first with P3, I think. Yeah, P3 Color landed in Safari in 2016. Um, hmm. We've just been adding it to more and more parts of everything. So now uh, in Safari 15.4 last March, it landed inside of Canvas in Safari as oh, well. Oh, I see. In, not just Safari, but all WebKit All the browsers little nuance, WebKit. right? Like, oh, sure, you can use it as a color in CSS, but does that mean, it doesn't necessarily mean it's absolutely available everywhere else. Yeah, or like it was a color, like it supported the photos, I think, but it took a while. Like, so the, there's also these color functions. I think people just don't aren't aware because they've been so well supported inside of WebKit for quite a few years, but because they weren't in other browsers or because people hadn't really talked about them much yet, there wasn't a lot of awareness, but now this is the year to really become aware of this stuff. So there's this color function and you can tell it which color space you want it to use. And then you can put all your numbers. So instead of being like RGB and HLS and like we would, we would have ended up with a whole bunch of those. So it just is like color paren, and then you can write RGB or you can write whatever you want. Like, so you right there, you can say display P3 and then you can use the numbers like zero, zero or 0.12 or whatever the numbers are to specify the color right. that you want to use. And it's opening up some doors to manipulating the colors too, which is pretty juicy. Yeah, and I had never used P3 color before, but I remember, you know, I always have a bit of a personal insecurity about being a, like, am I a good web designer or, or not a good, like, I'm sitting here trying to make this look good. It still looks like it looks bad. It still looks really bad. Keep going. It still looks really bad. Like, and when I started trying out p3 color making some demos i was like oh this is the secret way to make your stuff look really good because i was picking background colors and such and i was picking things that were intentionally in the part of the color space for p3 color that you cannot represent with the more traditional rgb color and suddenly everything looked really gorgeous and i was like oh this is amazing it makes me sad that the the part that was sliced away of available colors in the past were all the good ones. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so it's cool. There's cool and there's there's support for color palettes in Safari 15.4, which is a way to like you can have a color font, but instead of just only using the colors that were defined by the person who made the font, you can 
you can write your you can write CSS that will change the colors that are inside that color font, or you can switch the the person who made the font can actually make multiple palettes, and you can tell it, oh, we use this palette instead of that palette. Um, there's really powerful stuff. Uh, yeah, and and I know we got to go fast because we're so we're we're taking way too much time. But the new viewport units in backup and layout is are really really kind of awesome. Um, so, folks, I know for a long time, especially, have been frustrated with VH on mobile devices because all of the browsers on all of the mobile devices, when you scroll, the size of the viewport changes. And so VH was always defined to be kind of whatever was the longest possible length. But there are plenty of use cases where actually what you want is the shortest possible length or what you really want is for it to change, mm-hmm. the value to change as the viewport changes height. So now we have a, a unit for all of those things. You can use LVH if you want the long one and SVH if you want the short one and DVH if you want the dynamic one. And you can also do those as widths. You can also do those as referring to the block dimension or the inline dimension. Um, so there's a lot of new units, but if, especially on mobile, especially the that height unit. Is- it feels like a repair thing to me, like so happy that they're there. Ideally, this is what would have shipped originally because they're just they're just better in all ways. I'm not sure that mobile browsers did this when the CSS working group defined viewport units. I think viewport units were sort oh, of like they just didn't have the opportunity to even. Deal yeah, it's with like it. the yeah. like the working group didn't think about this because I'm not sure that this was a thing. I don't know. I'd have to go look it up and find out the timing of it. But it's like another example of like okay, the CSS working group thought that the simpler solution was going to solve all the, pro- all the all the use cases. It turned out it didn't. So it took a while for the CSS working group to figure out um, what they wanted to do instead. And then it once they figured that out, then yeah, it shipped in Safari 15.4 and is is shipping yeah. in other browsers too. I would think within a few years we're just going to see everybody using the. These new ones, but probably mostly the dynamic ones, because safety. I think it depends. It depends on what you're doing, I think. Because that was part of the argument about, like, well, what should we do? It's like, well, here's a reason why VH should mean this. It's like, no, 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 it should mean this for this good reason. It's like, no, 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 it should mean this other thing for this good reason. And we finally, I think the working group was finally like, actually, those are all good reasons. We should make three things. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not argue anymore about use cases. Let's just go ahead and make all three of them. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough call, though. That's why I don't envy that work. Cause well, and then now people are like, why are there so many new units? There's SV min, SV max, LV min, LV max, DV min, DV max, VB, VI, yeah. SVI, SVB, LVI. Oh, holy like, crap. Right. So it's like, well, um, because you wanted more units. So I want to know. <laughs> there's good reasons for all of them. But yeah, it's it's always trying to find the happy medium that we do solve the real problems, but without it, without making the whole thing too complicated. So yeah, anyway, good, good solution that, that's been needed for a while. Um, there's lots more. Maybe we can publish some things that we don't necessarily use our voices to talk about and just make in the show notes to see that you know, like a, because this, I don't know, I just wish everybody could see the same document I'm looking at because mm-hmm. there's so many interesting things. But for the for the spirit of uh, uh, making the show, it's normal length. Can we talk about HTML a little bit? It's I, I'm just particularly excited about pretty much everything on this list, starting with the, um, the dialogue element, like literally, I don't know, angle bracket, dialogue angle bracket. It's a real thing. Yep. Real thing. Uh, the folks writing the specifications 
figured out everything that needed to be figured out in order to make dialogue be fully accessible, which was really what the holdup was for such a long time. Um, dialogue, basically, you know, anytime you go to a website and you click a button or something and you get this kind of overlay that shows up, maybe it's a content management system and you're like looking at the content and you click the edit button and this sort of editing interface appears and that editing interface covers up the website and you can see it, you can see the website kind of in the background behind a translucent overlay. Um, but then the thing that you're interacting with is then that editing interface, right? So there's an accessibility concern there because um, focus and access to the DOM tree needs to really be captured inside of that CMS editing interface. And the like page, the web page content that's behind the dialog needs to get inerted. It needs to become inert. It needs to, it needs to <laughs> go away like from the accessibility tree. So the, it's that, like you went to a different website for a minute. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of like you went to a different web page, except you didn't go to a different web page, right? And so right. that whole state management, as far as how is that going to interact with screen readers or keyboards or tabbing or like all of the different considerations when you're really thinking about all of the ways that all of the humans interact with the web, like that had to be captured. And that's the great thing about dialogue is instead of using a div and a bunch of JavaScript to kind of create this yourself, but also, oh gosh, yeah, we didn't think about the stuff people because, right. So just use dialogue, use a dialogue element, put all of the things that you want to show up inside of that modal in that dialogue element. And then the things that are outside that modal or outside that dialogue element. Um, and you, it just, you get all of that interaction for free because it's HTML and it will behave properly. Mm -hmm. um, and then the backdrop pseudo class gives you the opportunity to style that kind of What's translucent overlay right. that's behind the dialogue. The modal pseudo class gives you a chance to address the dialogue element when it's in its open state, once it's been opened. Um, yeah, so that's all. Uh, it, it shipped in Safari 15.4, modal shipped in Safari 15.6. Um, and I believe... Uh, dialogue and backdrop also shipped in Firefox recently or is either is about to or did this past year um, because they were also waiting for accessibility to, to right. get figured out. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad that it is. And it seems like the few, you know, the amazing hoops that had to be jumped through to make this stuff work the best possible way in the past can just go away. This is going to save yeah. many thousands of lines of code uh, for websites. Very exciting that that exists. It also makes me think of when you shouldn't shouldn't use it. But yeah, go go ahead, Dave. Yeah. Oh well, and I if I'm not mistaken, like one of the accessibility problems was like the keyboard trapping stuff, and, and you know, like that was hard to do. And I think that's if I recall correctly, like that's solved now. Yeah. Like once that dialogue's open, you can't get back to the main page. And I, I mean, and that changes everything. Cause like now you can just put a dialogue wherever you want on the page. <laughs> like you had to kind of always chuck it at the bottom of the page, you know, and maybe mm. you still want to do that, but like now you can just be like, Hey, guess what? It's there. Uh, it just go. I don't know. That, well, that's true. It doesn't matter where it is in the DOM. Cause it just is in the middle or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's just kind of like, hey, look, it's easier now. Just do it. Do it this yeah, way. Yeah, that's nice. So. Yeah, and then the inert attribute is not for using with dialogue, but it does something similar for the, all the times when you're not using a dialogue, but you need something to be inert. So the demo that we were making, for example, is of a carousel where that center piece of content, maybe it's got a form on it or it's got some links and you want people to interact with or tab into that center piece of content. But 
but there's a sort of a previous content and next content that you can see on the sides. Maybe it's sort of dimmed out a little bit in one form or fashion, but it's still visible. But you don't want people to tab into it. You don't want people oh, to be able to click on the right. form or accidentally click a link or something. You can so you can put inert using JavaScript, put an inert attribute on that, you know, the 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 card or whatever that's kind of the before and the after cards. Um, and once there's an inert attribute on it, then it behaves much like the content that does behind a dialogue. It's just like a nerd. It doesn't, you can't, you can't access it. Um, you can just see it. Well, that's so, it feels like it was made just for CodePen. If you're logged into CodePen and browsing through grids, you'll see that there's a big right arrow that where you can click it and it'll slide new cards into place. Well, we actually mm. render out the cards after it, you know, off to the right because we want it to be really smooth and have them already preloaded when you do click that arrow. Right. But they're not inert right now, you know, because yeah. they're in the DOM, you can tab over to them, which is not super duper ideal. Yeah, so. toss a nerd on them and then they'll mm -hmm. stop capturing, you know, trapping, trapping people. I, I, I think you can't tab to them because we put some elaborate code into place to prevent you from doing that. But now it'll just be one HTML attribute. So yeah, a prop, nice. a prop on an element. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. HTML, a couple little mini ones, uh, lazy learning for images, pretty good. Cool. Awesome. Speaking, speaking of one attribute on a on a HTML element making a big difference, losing equals lady. Yeah, that shipped last March in 15.4. Um, and then AVIF, pretty cool. That's like a Huge. pretty good, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Images. small, I guess. AVIF <laughs> support in Safari 16. People are really excited about that. Pretty nice stuff. So think think of all that. You know, we, we can barely, we're packing stuff into it. They've all shipped in, you know, basically less than a year. I know. Pretty huge. There's so much. There's so much. Yeah, like like Web Inspector extensions now um, starting this fall. Folks who make your favorite extensions for developer tools can make them for Safari as well. Um, two years ago, we announced ex support for web extensions. Last year, we, ex we announced support for web extensions on iOS and iPadOS. And then... So web extensions, meaning like the little icons in the upper right of your browser that like do stuff. Yeah, that's cool. And Safari and supported in a way that by some miracle, all the browsers agreed to use the same format for those, which blows my mind a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's one of those, it's right. So way back in the day, part of the reason it was so hard to make websites and you had to make a separate website for IE and for Netscape is because browsers hadn't, hadn't yet agreed to implement web technology like HTML identically across browsers. And then the web standards movement came along and everything became standardized and now it's very very important that all of the browser engineers in the world always and only ship things that have been standardized in web standards in order to maintain that interoperability between browsers that same kind of you know movement and switch over over to standardization is happening right now with web extensions. So in the past, sort of each browser had their own way of that people could make add-ons or plugins or extensions or whatever they were called um, for that particular browser. And now, yeah, uh, it's one of the things that folks on my team have been helping really make make happen is is getting spinning up a standard organization and also all the APIs are documented on MDN now and you know more and more browsers are supporting more and more of those APIs every year and making it so that 
um, folks, anybody, and in fact, extensions are made out of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. So people mm-hmm. who know web development are like, you can make an extension. Um, and if you're interested in making them for Safari, we have a template inside Xcode. So you don't have to sort of know all the things about how to start. You can start from a template, which gives you like, it, it just, it's like a starter kit for a project that creates all the files that you need and creates all the connections between those files and makes it far easier. And then you just mostly JavaScript with HTML and CSS. Um, and yeah, that's nice. If you already have an extension, we have a script and it can just like take your existing project for um, Edge or Chrome or Firefox and like translate it over into an Xcode project and get you started. Um, so that the way things are packaged for each browser is slightly different, but the, the guts underneath the actual code that's running each extension is is the same. It can be a super big deal. I mean, obviously we know browsers care about their amount of usage and stuff. And, it, you know, if, if there, a browser said, oh, I, you know, there's some extension that's crucial to your day-to-day workflow, it's just gotta work you know if you're like i i can't use a browser that doesn't have one password in it so and then it means that teams that are making like you know the some some of the people's favorite extensions are for angular or react or view or you yeah know, that those, so these are web the, inspector extensions which web is inspector right? yeah developer tools extensions so now those will be hopefully we mean let your favorite the creators of your favorite developer tools extension know that you would love to see it in safari and they'll put them out um, in the fall Backstep for Safari. Tools, please. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. Instead of, you know, instead of a team having to create completely separate projects for each browser, it's like, they you know, basically it's the same project um, and they can d- and publish it and distribute it to all the browsers. That's the huge, yeah. huge, huge, huge. Speaking of huge, this is one I marked on our document that I just definitely wanted to fit in there in a way is the the whole passkeys thing, which was which was a big deal was made of out of WWDC, which rightfully so pretty cool. The idea is literally removing passwords from websites, not overnight, but it's the technology is here now to make this happen. And what? Yeah, it's really amazing. Because, I mean, there's so much that's wrong with passwords, right? I mean, people can trick you into, you know, they can fish folks and and trick trick people into giving them their passwords. Um, People keep reusing their passwords across accounts and they're using passwords that are too simple and it's, they're easy to crack and they get stolen sometimes. And, um, you know, we used, folks used to store passwords on websites in like plain text files. Like at least now they're salted and hashed, but still they can be leaked or cracked. So passkeys are just a way better replacement that will just make it impossible to fish and impossible to make simple ones that are easy to guess, impossible to be guessed, just like... Um, and they're you know, different uh, across every single thing. Yeah, right? they're different and, for everything. And so um, it, it uses autofill and face ID and touch ID it, um, for iOS and iPadOS and macOS. There's a bit of a biometric wall here. Like you you have to be using something with, with a biometric thing. But if you are... When, if, when you go to a website using a device that supports passkeys and that website supports passkeys, you'll basically just click a button to log in or click into the username field. And if you're on iOS or macOS, it will autofill your username for you. And then it will automatically just look at your face or ask you for your fingerprint and log you in. It just, it's amazing when you look at the demos and in the show notes, I'll put some, some links to some videos where you can, people can watch the actual, how it actually works. It, it's so 
so simple. It's just like, oh, I'd like to log in. Oh, I'm logged in. Thanks. Cool. And it, <laughs> and the site knows it's you. Like it's, it's definitely you. Um, yeah. Pretty amazing. I had to do this ridiculous thing. I just ordered this today where I have a Mac studio, a desktop computer, right? So I don't have... Um, because you can't use Face ID. Yeah, I mean, no desktop computer. I don't even think Mac laptops can do Face ID yet, right? That's like not a thing. You have to use your fingerprint thing if you're using a laptop. Yeah, fingerprints on the keyboard. And so there are, Apple has, you know, keyboards with fingerprint sensors on them. Exactly. But, but I need, for my fingers, I need the an ergonomic keyboard that Apple doesn't make. So I bought one anyway. At ergon- just this is so stupid, but I, I, I just had to do it because it's buggy me that I can like Velcro under my desk yeah. so that I can use the biometric thing but i don't actually want to use that keyboard i just want the little fingerprint thing right yeah. which i know is a little ridiculous but i'm ready now for pass keys because i have awesome. a keyboard under my yeah so <laughs> folks who run websites right so maybe something like i don't know CodePen has logins right um uh web Authn is your friend so the web authentication standard is the standard that is going to handle um, the whole like authentication side, the website side in order to do passkeys. So what's happening, you know, anybody listening who's used Git, maybe with say GitHub or Gitbucket or any kind of service like that, like, so in order to, like in order to log into github.com, it's sort of a traditional login. But when I'm sitting here and I want to push a commit or pull a commit or clone a new repo, um, I'm not actually going through the, you know, github.com website. I'm going through an authentication system that checks it to see whether or not my computer is authorized to have access to that repo and to push and pull and such. And so you set that up by using a private public key pair right? You open up a terminal, you type in some Mm. commands, you create a key, you go over to your um, text file, you got to find the right text file and copy out the public, make sure you got the public key, not the private key, get the public key, go over to github.com, find the right page for the settings and like paste in your public key, right? Setting all that up is, it takes some you know, I remember the first time I, I had to have a friend help me figure out how to do that because it's, it's not necessarily that easy. It's a little daunting, right? You, even, you know, by the time you do it a whole bunch of times, then you're like, okay, I got this down. But even then, often you're looking it up again. Um, but once that's set up, anytime I want to push or pull to my repo, it's super secure and super easy to do. I don't have to type in a password. I don't have to do anything. It's just that this computer knows it's me because what's happening is the... Um, my computer will ping that server and say, hey, let me in. And the server says, mm, hmm, are you, I, okay, I got a, a public key here for you. Uh, can you solve this puzzle? And it like makes this challenge, this this puzzle that if someone stole the puzzle along the way, nobody could do anything with it. It's not insecure, that puzzle. So that challenge then goes back to my device and the device says, Oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. I'll use my private key and this public key and uh, this puzzle and I'll put together an an answer to this challenge. And then my device sends the answer to that challenge back up to the server and the server goes, ah, that's correct. You you solved the challenge. So you must be you. You can can come on in. Um, So it's it's that technology. It's just without all the hard parts. Um, But there's a key, there's a public key and a private key and the private key is on your device and the public key is on the, you know, the server that you're 
communicating with. And if you're using iPad OS, iOS, Mac OS, or it's iPad OS and iOS 16, Mac OS Ventura, um, all of those passkeys are going to be um, through iCloud Keychain, it's all going to be um, synced. So I can create a passkey on one device and it's just going to automatically be on all of my other devices. Um, and and I can share a passkey or I can you know give someone else a passkey through um, airdrop. Um, and wow, also there's wild. ways because it's, this is all through the Fido Alliance. Um, so Google and Microsoft and Apple. So again, these are open standards, not necessarily just an Apple thing, which is pretty cool. Open yeah. standards. No, right. Even the word passkey, it's a common noun that anyone can use. It's a new word. Oh, I love that. Yeah, mm. it's like the word password. It's not owned, you know, it's not a brand name. It's a it's a common noun. I love it. I, I, I genuinely thought that was Apple branding. <laughs> so congratulations. Uh, but um, I, I, I love it because it, it reframes this thing. It's like, it's a new thing. It's a new way to log in. Um, even like if I want to like whatever log in to GitHub on my kid's iPad for some reason, my iPad's out of battery or something. I can just like log in and, and it can even just say like, Oh, if you want this, scan this QR code and log in from your phone or something like that. Like I saw some demos that kind of had that feature and I just like, so my identity is tied to like my phone, which knows I'm Dave Rupert and I have this GitHub account and, and you can kind of just log in anywhere. I, I just, and it's just as easy as like whatever a two-factor auth text, but it's kind of jukes all of that noise, you know. Yeah, I'll never get any text ever again if this rolls out everywhere because I'll I'll be fully uh, authenticated everywhere. Yeah, it's more secure than a lot of the other authentication methods that we've been using, and it's way easier to use both at the same time, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's weird that one technology is all better all the time. Yeah, like I ha- like I have a phone, I have pass keys, I've signed into, you know, six different six dozen different websites with different pass keys and I need to log in and I don't have a computer. I go to, you know, maybe I'm in college and I go to my school library and I go to log in, but I need to get into codepen.io or I need to get into whatever website I want, you know, some store website. Um and I can, yeah, bring up on screen this QR code and then use my phone to authenticate, you know, connect like um, use the camera on my phone to look at that QR code, let my phone know what's going on. The phone will authenticate me, say, yeah, yeah, we've got a copy of that passkey right here. I know who that mm, is. Yeah, yep, that's yep. Nice. You should let her in. And boom, you're in. Yeah. And the web spec, so um, it's very well supported already in all the browsers because it's the same spec that's been used for hardware authentication devices like YubiKey for several years now. It's an extension of that system, the credential management APIs and stuff. So um, it's it's been a many year process of building a ton up upon thing on top of thing. Um, you know, in for iOS and iPadOS and macOS, um, you know, iCloud Keychain is really central to the experience and making it work across devices and be so easy for all of our users. And that's uh, that's been many years building, you know, years of, of experience figuring out how to make passwords work and be very secure and to and to to sync everywhere. Um, 
So it's pretty exciting. And it just seems like it's the start. So here's hoping for it. What I want to see is this, first of all, get integrated in lots of places, but then knowing that there's like this biometric requirement that the, like, the hardware and the, everything around that gets better too, because it seems like that's kind of yeah. a part of it. Yeah. And now is the time for folks who are sysadmins or are, you know, who do have a login on your website to figure out how to start adding support. And like you said, it will be a transition. You can start Mm. to uh, offer to your current users the chance to switch over from using a password to using a pass key. Um, And as new users come, they can, if you'd like, you can offer them a choice. Um, You don't have to only offer one thing or the other. In fact, many websites right now have multiple different ways to log in and pass keys can be a new way to log in. Um, and it's our hope that, you know, over time, it will just be so easy to use and so secure that make, you know, make people feel really safe and and happy about the security that more and more folks will say, yeah, yeah, no, I want the passkey. That's way easier than having to manage a password. Well, and, and I think it's important to say it's like my website is not storing somebody's face. <laughs> like, no. like, I'm just asking the device like, hey, is this Dave Rupert? And the device is just like, yeah, totally. There is. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the website is storing the public key, and in fact, it and that's it. And in fact, that means that the website, if you are in charge of the security of some web servers, you're going to want to get as many of your users as possible off of your current login system into passkeys because. risk mitigation (laughs) instant, right? Totally. Yeah. Like, why is someone going to try to crack your server and hack in and steal all your public keys? Like, they can't do anything with all those public keys. So, yeah. Fantastic. Um, Yeah. Wonderful. I I think this is revolutionary. I'm excited. I I know it was like Edge, old Edge had a version of this, you know, that was tied to Windows Hello or something. But, but like, it was very like, I don't know if it's ready for prime time, but I, I feel like now it's like, okay, this is it. This is, let's revolutionize logging in. This is wonderful. Yeah. And in fact, you can go over to the Fido Alliance website. I'll put a link in your show notes as well for the page that they have about what they call uh, about passkeys, which is also known by the nerdier name, multi-device Fido credentials. Um, And there's some videos there of them explaining like in in a lot of detail, exactly what's going on with the technology, Um, because there's really two specs. There's the WebAuthn spec, which is what web developers need to know about. But then there is this other spec, um, I think it's the CPET2 spec or something. I forgot to look it up before the show, but um, it, it handles the standardization of kind of all the all of what's going on with the devices and the operating systems, um, which we web developers don't really need to understand at all. But there's, there's a standard for that as well. Like, how does this work in all the complicated security folks kind of way? Um, so, yeah, it's really, I mean, these, you know, we're all very, very serious about making this pretty fantastic, completely easy to use for users and uh, far more secure than anything that we have today. Very excited about that. We're going to have to leave it at that. At the, at the thinking about the exciting feature, future. Yep. We're unfortunately out of time to talk about uh, all the fun stuff in Safari. So, uh, Jen, thank you uh, for coming on. Um, and uh, for people who aren't following you and giving you money, how can they do that? <laughs> Yeah, so OneWebKit.org is a fantastic place to learn more. There's articles for each version of Safari that's come out this year. The Safari 15.4 article and the Safari 16 articles especially have a ton more information about 
what's happened. There's also talks from WWDC. There's an entire talk on what's new in WebKit and Safari, where we go through all the things that we just went through and even more in like 40 minutes because we went really fast uh, in that session. Um, there's a session on web push, meet web push for Safari, which we didn't even have time to talk about, was coming into Safari 16. And there's also a whole session on pass keys with a lot more detail about how to implement pass keys on your website or your app. Um, but yeah, on Twitter, Jen Simmons uh, WebKit also has a Twitter account. Uh, WebKit is the name of that Twitter account. Um, bugs.webkit.org is a really good place to go. This is the one ask I would have of people is if you find a bug that you really think is something that's wrong with WebKit, uh, something in our HTML, CSS, JavaScript implementations, Web API implementations, or there's something that's missing that you would like to have that's not there, go to bugs.webkit.org to file an issue about that technology. Um, and especially what's really helpful is use cases. Um, if there's something that's missing and you would like us to implement it, tell a little story about what it is that you're trying to do and why that's important to your project. And maybe even what you're having to do if you, since you don't have it, like it makes your website slower or you know whatever, like tell us the story of why this is important to you. Um, also, if you have ideas about or bugs, problems with Web Inspector, that's the place to go. If you have uh, feedback that you'd like to give us about the interface of Safari, like tab groups or you know uh, bookmarks or other things about Safari itself, um, bugs or comments or feature requests, you can go to feedbackassistant.apple.com um, to file issues about the Safari interface itself. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, so much, Jen, for coming on. And thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcast of choice. Be sure to start heart favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter for tens of tweets a month. Um, and join us in the Discord, patreon.com slash shop talk show. Chris, you got anything else you'd like to say? Shoptalkshow.com.